1: And that was an excerpt from Vinnie Paz singing Writings on Disobedience and Democracy. Welcome to You Can't Be Neutral. This is a political podcast inspired by Howard Zinn and progressive and radical activism, taking a look at society, media, and politics. You can follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. Find a link there to send me a message, and some links there to make a donation. You can make a one-time or recurring donation to keep this podcast free and independent. First up, we have a story written by Michael Mechanic, published at TheAtlantic.com. Paul Piff just landed on Park Place. I own it. Shit, he says. I also own three railroads, a couple of high-rent monopolies, and a smattering of random properties. Piff is low on cash. He's toast. We're playing Monopoly on a sunny, pre-pandemic afternoon in Piff's modest office at UC Irvine. The 39-year-old psychology professor is an expert on how differences in wealth and status affect people's values and behavior. On his desk, accompanying an Iggy Pop figurine and a squeeze toy in the shape of a brain, is a framed print of a Campbell's soup can with the slogan, Empathy. Have some. Piff may be an empathetic guy, but his frustration is showing. He's ready, he says, for this absurd game to be done, so he can go home for dinner. The game is absurd because it's rigged heavily in my favor. More than a decade ago, as a postdoctoral researcher in the lab of UC Berkeley psychologist Dr. Keltner, Piff used a series of rigged monopoly games to see how people would respond to being placed randomly into a position of privilege. Some 200 student volunteers were pitted against one another. The, quote, rich player was given twice as much cash as the poor player, collected twice as much money when passing go and passed go more often, because he got to roll two dice, while the poorer player got only one. Richie Rich also got the most popular playing piece, the little car, while his opponent received the undesirable boot. As the games progressed, rich players became more and more cocksure. They spoke louder, moved their pieces more aggressively, and even consumed more pretzels from bowls that the researchers had put out as part of the experiment. We had little gradients on the table where you could measure how much space a person is taking up from when they began to when they ended, Piff told me. The richer players began to take up more room. They got bigger as they got richer. It's Piff's turn. He rolls his die. Five. Tennessee. I'm not going to buy it. He can't afford it. The monopoly experiment wasn't the most rigorous science ever, and Piff never published the results, although the study was later replicated by others and referenced in Piff's popular TED Talk, Does Money Make You Mean? But his observations were consistent with a large body of social science finding that people of higher socioeconomic status, compared with those lower down the ladder, are more prone to entitlement in narcissistic behavior. Wealthier subjects also tend to be more self-oriented and more willing to behave unethically in their own self-interest, to lie during negotiations, say, or to steal from an employer. In one study, Piff and his colleagues stationed a pedestrian at the edge of a busy crosswalk and watched to see which cars would let the person cross. Suffice it to say that Fords and Subarus, we're far more likely to stop than Mercedes and BMWs. We find such research amusing because it jibes with our stereotypes of rich people. But there's nothing frivolous about asking how having an abundance of money affects our psychology. After all, the ranks of the rich and the wealth they command have exploded in the United States since the end of the Great Recession. Not even a pandemic could stop this avalanche of assets. The ultra-wealthy, Americans with $30 million and up, suffered a brief setback, but by September 2020, the markets had rebounded and the rich were very nearly whole again. Even as the poor and middle class reeled from job losses and the threat of evictions and foreclosures, scores of new billionaires were minted. Early in his career, Piff had observed that people were studying the causes and effects of poverty ad nauseum, but nobody was addressing the questions he wanted to ask. Namely, what are the social and psychological ramifications of being on top of the economic food chain, of occupying positions of privilege? Wealth-related differences in attitudes and behavior are particularly important wherever the rich have an outsized sway over politics and policy. If, for instance, wealth makes people less compassionate then a government that believes that the rich should have behaved in the interests of the populace may have to force them to do so. Political scientists such as Benjamin Page and Martin Gillens have found notable differences in the policy preferences of affluent versus middle class Americans not only on purely economic matters like taxation, but also on public education funding, racial equity, and environmental protections, all of which the rich have been significantly less likely to support. This matters because of the influence the rich have over government officials. In one study, Gillens, now a professor at UCLA, combed through thousands of public survey responses and discovered that on issues where the views of wealthy voters diverged significantly from those of the rest of the populace, the policies ultimately put in place strongly reflected the desires of the most affluent respondents, the top-earning 10%. Those policies, the study concluded, bore virtually no relationship to the preferences of poorer Americans. Wealthy people are less likely than poor ones, in lab settings at least, to relate to the suffering of others. When people experience compassion, it turns out our hearts actually slow down. In 2012, PIF's then colleagues, Michael Krause and Jennifer Steller hooked volunteers up to ECG machines and showed them two short videos, a neutral video of a woman explaining how to construct a patio wall, and a compassion video of children receiving chemotherapy treatments for cancer. Relative to the wealthier participants, the poorer ones not only reported feeling greater compassion for the kids, but also exhibited a significantly larger slowdown in heart rate from one video to the next. If affluent people are less moved by the suffering of others, they should be less likely to help those in need. And this too seems to be true, both in the lab and outside it. While wealthy families donate significantly more money to charity on average than poor families do, they tend to give away a smaller share of their income. Quote, as wealth goes up, the stinginess seems to increase, Piff said. Raymond Fisman, a behavioral economist at Boston University, has found that the elite, regardless of political affiliation, tend to be efficiency-minded as opposed to equality-minded. He and several colleagues, including Daniel Markovitz, the author of 2019's The Meritocracy Trap, recruited a group of high-status liberals, Yale law students, who identified as Democrats by a margin of more than 10 to 1, and had them play a version of the so-called dictator game. Participants were given tokens redeemable for cash, and were told they could give as many tokens as they liked, or none at all, to a fellow participant. An efficiency-minded person behaves more generously when helping someone else doesn't cost her much. For example, when she's told she needs to give up only 10 tokens for the other participant to get 20. But an equality-minded person is just as willing to share, even if it costs her more. These categories can be used to predict, for example, whether a person will support redistributive tax policies. Despite their progressive leanings, 80% of the Yale students were efficiency focused compared with 50% of a public sample. These results offer a potential new explanation for the muted policy response to increased income inequality in the United States, the study authors wrote, because the policymaking elite are far less inclined than the general population to sacrifice efficiency to promote equality. Which brings us back to Monopoly. The most interesting part of the experiment, Piff said, came after when players were asked to talk about what they had done to affect the game's outcome. The obvious answer was that the fix was in and the rich player got lucky. But the rich players were almost twice as likely as the poor ones to talk about game strategy, how they'd earned their win. And so it goes in the world. Some of us are born better off than others. Quote, But that's not how people experience relative privilege or relative disadvantage, Piff said. What people do is attune to the things they've done. I've worked hard. I worked hard in school you start plucking out those things. Successful people tend to feel deserving of their lot. As a corollary, they tend to view less fortunate people as having earned their lack of success. So you're more likely to make sense of inequality, Piff explained, to justify it, make inequality seem equitable. The psychologists Kraus and Keltner have found that people who rank themselves at the top of the social scale are significantly more likely to endorse essentialism. The notion that group characteristics are immutable and biologically determined. Precisely the sort of beliefs used to justify the mistreatment of low-status groups such as immigrants and ethnic minorities. Countless studies, Krauss writes, point to an upper-class tendency towards self-preservation. That is, people who view themselves as superior in education, occupation, and assets are inclined to protect their group status at the expense of groups they deem less deserving. Quote, These findings should call into question any beliefs in noblesse oblige, Elevated rank does not appear to obligate wealthy individuals to do good for the benefit of society. A layperson, perusing the literature on wealth and behavior, might conclude that wealthy people are assholes. But that's not really fair. When I'm talking about these findings, it can just sound like flat-out rich bashing, which I'm not interested in doing, Piff said. One can be extraordinarily rich and not exhibit these patterns, or be quite poor and exhibit them. The effects that he and his colleagues describe are small to medium, and they are averages. Further complicating our stereotypes is the fact that the most compassionate choice isn't necessarily the best one. Wealthy subjects, regardless of politics, are prone to a more utilitarian mindset, than their less wealthy counterparts, which enables them, as Piff and his co-authors note in one paper, to quote, make dispassionate choices to serve the greater good that others might find quite difficult. During a pandemic, for example, health authorities may have to weigh the likelihood that a given vaccine could severely harm a small number of recipients against the prospect that it could save millions of lives. Piff's monopoly experiment was fun, but it didn't come close to approximating our nation's true economic divide. He had to make sure the games weren't too rigged or the poor players wouldn't bother trying. I instead proposed a game in which I had the wealth of an average member of the top 1% versus Piff's middle class net worth. I would get about $53 for every $1 in his pocket. But then we had a problem. If we gave Piff $500 so he could buy a few properties, I would have been due $26,500. A Monopoly set contains only 20580 So, thinking about that just a little bit more, the actual inequality in the 1% and the middle class in the United States is so great that it can't adequately be illustrated in the game of monopoly in a realistic way. We tried a new setup. Piff would still represent the middle class, and I'd get to be a run-of-the-mill top 10-percenter. He'd start with $500, and I'd get $4,500. While we counted out our cash, Piff told me about the backlash his work had received over the years. Tons of hate mail. I used to get a lot more, but I still probably get an email a day. I think most of it is political, because it seems so clearly ideologically driven. I asked whether he thought his progressive values affected his research findings. Probably inherently, he admitted. They likely affect the questions he chooses to ask. As he elaborated, I suddenly realized I'd screwed up my math. I actually should have had ten times as much money as he had, not nine. So I'll just take another $500, okay? He regarded me with a bemused expression. Quote, I love that as I was doing some personally revelatory sharing, he said. Probably some large proportion of your mind and attention was devoted to calculating out how much more you should have gotten. The nerve of the little people. Here's a piece written by Juliana Kaplan, published at BusinessInsider.com. Billionaires around the world added $4 trillion to their wealth during the pandemic. From March 18, 2020 to March 18, 2021, the world's billionaires added $4 trillion to their wealth, according to a new report from the Left-Leaning Institute for Policy Studies, IPS. That's a 54% increase for the world's 2,365 billionaires who now have $12.39 trillion. The wealthiest 20 billionaires alone added $742 billion to their collective wealth during a pandemic, a 68% increase. A January Oxfam report, which tracked global billionaire gains through December 31, 2020, found that the world's billionaires had added $3.9 trillion to their wealth during the pandemic, an increase that could pay for the entire world's vaccinations and prevent anyone from falling into poverty. That report found that the recovery for people at the bottom could take up to a decade, with 200 million to 500 million people falling into poverty in 2020. Now, according to the IPS report, which analyzes data from Forbes, Bloomberg, and WealthX, those billionaire gains have grown one of the oxfam reports possible solutions for creating a better world was imposing a wealth tax the ips report found that american billionaires account for less than a third of that total wealth but a wealth tax like the one proposed by senator elizabeth warren where households would with a net worth of over 50 million dollars would see a two percent tax and those with over 3 billion dollars would see a 3% tax, would still raise $120 billion per year, according to the report. From the end of 2019 to the end of 2020, the top 1% of Americans added just about $4 trillion to their wealth, while the bottom 50% held just $2.49 trillion in total household wealth by the end of 2020. However, wealth tax may still be a ways off in the U.S., President Joe Biden's new infrastructure package is paired with an accompanying tax hike, but that increase would only target corporations, raising the corporate tax from 21% to 28%, and seek to enact a global minimum tax rate of 21%. It leaves wealth individuals alone, for now. Although Biden's administration has said it wants to tax households making $400,000 a year and up. Quote, I'm open to other ideas so long as they do not impose any tax increase on people making less than $400,000, Biden said in his speech, introducing the package. And this piece from Kenny Stansel, published at CommonDreams.org. If governments don't close the gap between society's richest and poorest members, which was growing before, and has exploded during the coronavirus crisis. By raising wages for low-income workers, taxing wealthy households, and using the increased revenue to improve social welfare, they should expect diminished trust in government and increased social polarization and unrest. That warning came in a new report on the intensification of inequality released Thursday by the International Monetary Fund, IMF, A Washington, D.C. based international financial institution whose lending policies prior to and even during the COVID 19 pandemic have heightened vulnerability to crisis by imposing public expenditure cuts in developing countries. The IMF, as Bruce Coburn sings, is a dirty motherfucker. He doesn't say motherfucker. He says, IMF, dirty MF, takes away everything it can get, always making certain that there's one thing left, keep them on the hook with insupportable debt. The IMF is a international lender. It lends to poor countries. It puts them into debt. And then it imposes agreements on those countries to cut services in order to service the debt. So no services, less services, fewer services, less robust services for the public and the poor, more money being extracted from those countries to pay back the amount they've borrowed. The IMF noted that the coronavirus disaster laid bare pre-existing inequalities within and between countries in terms of income and access to public goods, such as health care and vaccines. Such inequalities have worsened the effect of the COVID-19 pandemic, with a strong link between poverty, unequal access to basic services, and infection and mortality rates. While pre-existing inequalities have worsened health outcomes for vulnerable populations, the coronavirus-driven economic crisis has, in turn, exacerbated inequalities. For instance, 95 million more people were thrown into extreme poverty during 2020 than would have been expected based on pre-pandemic projections. And uneven access to quality education and digital infrastructure, quote, may cause income gaps to persist generation after generation. And don't let anybody convince you that this is an inevitable consequence of an unforeseen catastrophe, an unforeseen pandemic that was out of anybody's control. The result of the pandemic and its impacts are just amplifying the effects of the system that was built and designed by human beings to profit specific human beings and maintained by those same human beings to profit those specific human beings. It it, it was not an accident. This is not an accident of nature or something out of somebody's control. The while the pandemic, the extent of the pandemic may not have been foreseen by many, the systemic structures that we build to manage our economy are built in a way that, that this, is, this is the only outcome that can happen. When crises strike, people who, who ordinarily struggle in the system Without a crisis, inevitably get set back further. Inevitably can't, they, they struggle to manage themselves within the economic system as it is without com- the compounding pressure of a crisis. The compounding pressure of a crisis just accelerates that, that risk, that uh, lack of ability to manage within the same system. It's a systemic problem. It's a problem of how the system works. It is not a problem of, of the, the pandemic or the crisis, whatever the crisis might be. If we had resilient systems that benefited everybody, that let everybody have the means to live a fulfilled life that didn't have to struggle just for sustenance just to procure the means of survival food water clothing shelter if if it was not a struggle to get to obtain those things because an economic system did not impose that struggle upon so many then when a crisis came about we would not have these we would not have these outcomes we would not have the group that has been struggling to fight to survive be set so far back. And the group that was surviving in the middle be pushed down into poverty. We would be supporting each other if we had an economic system that provided for all our needs. According to the IMF, Disruptions to education threaten social mobility by leaving long-lasting effects on children and youth, especially those from poorer households. These challenges are being compounded by accelerated digitalization and the transformational effect of the pandemic on the economy, posing low-skilled workers with difficulties in finding employment. It is against this backdrop, the IMF added, that, quote, Societies may experience rising polarization, erosion of trust in government, or social unrest. These factors complicate sound economic policymaking and pose risks to macroeconomic stability and the functioning of society. No surprise here, the IMF has identified a a real issue, a real problem, but then, then ties it back to the risk of stable markets, the risk of stable governments, the risk that, that people who have had everything stripped away from them, who have lost everything, may be more likely to rise up against those governments who failed them, who failed to build systems that would support them in everyday life and would support them in a crisis. Reducing inequality, quote, is crucial for policymakers to strengthen public trust and support social cohesion, the IMF stressed. Governments need to provide everyone with a fair shot, enabling all individuals to reach their potential. Fuck a fair shot. We don't need a fair shot. We have the ability and capability and financial ability collectively to provide for everyone basics, all the basics needed for survival, food, water, shelter, clothing, all those basics. It is 100% within our means to do so globally in a sustainable way. It's not the ability that is lacking we don't need a fair shot we need to create and promote a system that provides for everybody doesn't provide an opportunity for everybody provides fucking basic needs for everybody quote the pandemic has confirmed the merits of equal access to basic services Healthcare, quality education, and digital infrastructure, and of inclusive labor markets and effective social safety nets, the IMF noted. Better performance in these areas has enhanced resilience to the pandemic and is key for the economic recovery to benefit all and strengthen trust in government. The economic recovery will not benefit all. The economic recovery will benefit the people who already benefit from it. And it will leave the rest behind, as it always has. In the months ahead, the IMF said, universal access to inoculation will be decisive. While, quote, cross-country surveys administered before the pandemic suggest that respondents in advanced and emerging market economies have long expressed favor for more tax-financed spending on education, health care, and old age care, and more progressive taxation the IMF wrote that popular support for better public services has likely risen in the past year due to increased attention on governments and their ability to respond to the crisis because quote public finances have been weakened in most countries as a result of the pandemic many countries will need to raise additional revenues and improve spending efficiency to support inclusive growth, in a context of tighter fiscal space. Policymakers, the IMF added, should recognize that various aspects of inequality, income, wealth, opportunity, are mutually reinforcing and create a vicious circle. Policy interventions should therefore combine pre-distributive policies that affect incomes before taxes and transfers, such as increasing employment and wages, as well as redistributive policies such as raising taxes on the rich to expand and improve the provision of public goods. The IMF made the following recommendations. Investing more and investing better in education, health, and early childhood development. Strengthening social safety nets by expanding coverage of the most vulnerable households and increasing adequacy of benefits. Mustering the necessary revenues, advanced economies can increase progressivity of income tax and increase reliance on inheritance gift taxes and property taxation. COVID-19 recovery contributions and quote, excess corporate profits taxes could be considered. Wealth taxes can also be considered if the previous measures are not enough. Emerging market and developing economies should focus on strengthening tax capacity to finance more social spending. Acting in a transparent manner. For most countries, these reforms would be best anchored in a medium-term fiscal framework as early as possible, strengthening public financial management and improving transparency and accountability, not least for COVID-19 response measures, will reinforce trust in government, and supporting lower-income countries that face especially daunting challenges. Meeting the Sustainable Development Goals, a broad measure of the access to basic services, by 2030, would require $3 trillion for 121 emerging market economies and low-income developing countries, which is 2.6% of 2030 world GDP. Support from the international community is needed to aid reform efforts, with the immediate priority being affordable access to vaccines. The publication of the IMS report coincided with another analysis out Thursday which revealed the world's 2,365 billionaires have seen their collective fortunes grow by $4 trillion during the pandemic, a staggering windfall that prompted demands for a global wealth tax aimed at curbing inequality and funding key priorities such as the lagging international vaccination effort. Quote, Unless we tax the world's billionaires, warned Chuck Collins, researcher with the program on inequality at the Institute for Policy Studies. The legacy of the pandemic will be accelerated concentrations of wealth and power.
0: Passed with power, here they come, international loan sharks, backed by the And whose brow is smeared with the blood of the poor. Who rob life of its quality, who render rage a necessity by turning countries into labor camps, modern slavers and dragons' chains And a cynical instrument who makes the gun into a sacrament. The only response to the deification of tyranny by so-called developed nations, idolatry of ideology. North, south, east, west. Kill the best and buy the rest. It's just spend a buck to make a buck. of the people in Missouri. Sells out leaders kiss the ladies shake hands with the fellows and it's open for business like a cheap bordello and they call it democracy 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 and See the loaded eyes of the children too Trying to make the best of it the way kids do One day you're gonna rise from your habitual feast To find yourself staring down the throat of the beast They call a revolution IMF, dirty MF takes away everything it can get Always making certain that there's one thing left Keep them on the hook with insupportable death And they call it democracy. And they call it democracy.
1: And that was Bruce Coburn with Call It Democracy. Here's a piece by Doug Nice, published at Salon.com. More Lies We Live By How exactly did America come to love billionaires so much? The idea of having an obligation towards others as fellow citizens, let alone fellow human beings which is scorned or condemned when used as an argument for reducing inequality, becomes sacrosanct when deployed to protect inequality, and of course, war. It's dog-eat-dog, or every man for himself, except when it's united we stand in the war on terror, or support our troops, or one nation under God, or in the face of pandemic, quote, we are all in this together. But there is no contradiction here. There is an obligation towards society, but it's one that mostly extends upward towards our betters and the great nation of which they are seen as the supreme embodiment. Given our conditioning, we readily imagine the have-nots envying and coveting the bounty of the haves and consider that to be evil is shameful, a sin of sins, thou shalt not covet. But we don't judge the insatiability of the haves, their drive to grab everything they can for themselves. We may even admire or envy them for it, as many do Donald Trump. He and his cronies were so wonderfully shameless, the very image of history's elite barbarians, as Nietzsche describes them. In a fascinating article, How Billionaires See Themselves, Nathan J. Robinson of Current Affairs examines the memoirs of a slew of billionaires. To a man, they deny that money was their primary motivation. It was just a happy byproduct of their success in benefiting society. However, their careers, by their own accounts, say otherwise. What good they did, if any, was the byproduct? What they knew, in some cases all they knew, was how to take advantage of situations and the work of other people to benefit themselves. What sets them apart from the herd, their special gift, is a single-minded devotion to making money. We might say they have the Midas touch or honor them artists of the almighty dollar. Walt Whitman would find a more poetic way of referring to them as an item in his Catalog of Democracy. As Robinson understates it, a rich person is not necessarily rich because they created value. They might simply, as Marx suggested, have found ways to extract value from the labor of others. When we analyze what these men actually do, their social function begins to seem far more questionable. So what, say you? They create jobs and bring other benefits, including philanthropic contributions. So what, say I? Better economic policies could achieve as much or more, with fewer harmful side effects. The Sackler family, once known, if at all, for its benefactions, became notorious as purveyors of opioids. The issue of billionaires came up during the 2020 Democratic primary debates because of tax and antitrust proposals made by Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders. Were billionaires as indifferent to money as they claimed to be, would those proposals have alarmed them so much? Some big Democratic donors threw a fit threatening to support Trump if either of those reprobates became the nominee the arrogance of Michael Bloomberg buying his way into the race as it threatened to turn dangerous, and the cravenness of the Democratic Party in immediately allowing him a place in the debates were enough to shock some of us. Unsurprisingly, the mainstream media sprang to the defense of the billionaire class as if it were a sin to criticize them. We would be better off not beholden to them, which is worse for us morally than any so-called dependence on government. I have great respect for anonymous donors, how I wish the late David H. Koch had been among them instead of being allowed to plaster his name on the former New York State Theater at Lincoln Center. Our attitude towards our, quote, betters, is too often one of fawning. Identify up, sociologist and social critic Philip Reif is said to have counseled his students, gratuitously in my view. It is a lesson Barack Obama seems to have taken to heart early, how alike Obama, Clinton, and Reagan, products of modest backgrounds, were in their self-identification with the haves. Tony Blair and Margaret Thatcher likewise. The fascination with celebrities nurtured assiduously is ubiquitous. Needless to say, identifying up, however slavish it may be, is not at all what is meant by slave morality as described and stigmatized by Nietzsche. In life, if not in his philosophy, the resentment of those nursing a grievance is often directed downward from those who have little to those who have less. Side note, and I've probably mentioned this before, this is what Utah Phillips calls controlling the blame pattern. Utah says, Why is it that large numbers of people in my country assign blame downwards to some welfare chiseler down at the bottom trying to make a little bit of something that have nothing at all and never assign the blame upwards? It's because the blame pattern is manipulated. Nietzsche's own petty bourgeois resentment of other people, which was the basis of his rejection of the modern state, it allows people to vote and to form unions, compounding the error of Christianity, which allows everyone a soul of equal value to God, is a case in point. Identify up has a corollary. Pass judgment down. Think of the mind in morality killing subservience to authority, presumed authority in that case of the fast-food restaurant manager in the 2012 film Compliance. When those in question are ordinary people, like the homeowners victimized in the 2008 housing collapse, the political rhetoric is of personal responsibility and the necessity of paying for one's mistakes. When the people are those who hold power, like the perpetrators and facilitators of the housing bubble, the rhetoric is of human fallibility, we all make mistakes, and who could possibly have known? And our duty is to forgive and forget. Besides, one should never presume to question one's betters. It is a right that they have their losses made good immediately while ordinary people pay the price and go on paying it. Another example of a small or limited government in action. Maybe that should say inaction. In effect... We accept the dictum of whatever issues from a sense of power, or can be so construed, is life-affirming and life-enhancing, however cruel or destructive, whereas whatever issues from a sense of weakness, or can be so construed, is fatally compromised. In short, inequality is good. Efforts to alleviate it are bad, or at least counterproductive. Our attitude towards political violence is similarly skewed. We judge violence from below against authority far more harshly than violence from above, if we judge the latter unfavorably at all. Our political language manifests the outlook and the objectives of those at the top. Thus, worker-disempowering laws have been allowed to pass for generations as, quote, right-to-work laws. A law that bribes workers, in effect, not to join unions and that leaves them under ordinary circumstances at the mercy of their employers is sold as liberating. The worker is flattered as a proud, free individual capable of fighting her own battles. Except that she doesn't have to, thanks to a right-to-work law, she can reap the rewards of union membership, temporarily at least, without having to pay dues. Who says there is no free lunch? Think of the fun that both Democratic and Republican politicians and their patrons have had in recent decades with the once constructive words reform or modernization on anti-regulatory or anti-welfare legislation when gutting or demolition would make would be more like it. Reform has become America-speak for reversing reforms that serve the public interest in favor of catering to the wealthy. Welfare reform in 1996, pushed by Bill Clinton, ended welfare as we had known it for 60 years, namely, the Aid for Families with Dependent Children program. How satisfying it must have been for reformed and modernized Democrat Bill Clinton to kill off that crucial piece of his party's New Deal heritage. And he went on to kill Glass-Steagall and the Commodity Exchange Act of 1936, replacing the latter with the Commodity Futures Modernization Act of 2000, which deregulated over-the-counter derivatives. Think of what more he might have, quote, accomplished. Social Security was in his sights. But for Monica Lewinsky. School reform, in progress for some 25 years, has meant shortchanging public education while funding private, unaccountable charter schools generously. Entitlement reform, an ongoing battle of even longer standing has meant undermining other social programs, especially Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, in order to pave the way for handing the funds over to Wall Street. As a parting gift, the Trump administration bequeathed an experiment to privatize Medicare, presented as an improved version. As Diane Archer told R.J. Eskow of the Zero Hour podcast and YouTube program. Going under the innocuous title of the, quote, geographic direct contracting model, the experiment is set to start next January. Talk about black humor. Consider entitlement. The very word calls up visions of spoiled, demanding children. But what are we to make of those who begrudge the less favored their modest entitlements? They feel entitled to demand first dibs on every penny paid out by government. Entitlement, in the pejorative sense, is a descendant of coddling, a Victorian term reserved for measures benefiting the working class. Current use of the term refers exclusively to programs for the population at large, not to the entitlements reserved for the government's largest beneficiaries and the supremely corrupting sense of entitlement that goes with them. Entitlements are charged with, quote, breeding dependency or being demoralizing. But as I argued in a previous article, the real trouble is that they encourage not idleness, but uppityness or insubordination. Hardly the attitude welfare states like ours seeks to encourage. Citizens owe absolute unquestioning fealty to this mightiest of nations, but are provided with the straw man of government on which to expend any spillover hostility entitlements encourage us to make demands demands of the sort that government exists to answer instead of leaving it to our betters to decide what's best for us after meeting their own needs as so-called limited government calls for is it any wonder that seniors with their social security and their medicare have gotten so high and mighty so far above themselves Daring to speak up on behalf of these programs, they have made themselves targets in a campaign to stir up intergenerational hostility as a means of helping the most entitled strengthen their grip on the economy. It speaks volumes that encouraging such hostility is hailed as fiscally responsible, whereas calling attention to the elite's self-interest in entitlement reform is divisive and class warfare. People who actually need Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, like those receiving government assistance of any kind, are obviously inferior and have no right to expect, much less demand, anything. The fact that they earn their benefits through taxes on their wages means nothing. Having worked for them is not enough. They should have amassed enough wealth to do without those entitlements. So just think about this. Think about that that I just read. Anytime you get uh, politicians or others decrying the fact that Social Security is going to run out of money, the 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 funds won't be there when you young people get old. They are pitting you young people, which I could say we young people, against the people who have worked their whole lives and paid into these programs and now are. Getting the benefits of these programs that they supported. So do not take their bait. The unceasing bipartisan campaign against Social Security and Medicare points up another objectionable feature of, quote, entitlements. They tend to unite the population. Something, absent a pandemic, to be reserved for shopping, entertainment, sports, supporting our troops, and voting Republican or Democratic. Shouldn't those anodyne diversions be enough? What more do people want? Entitlements are objectionable for the same reason labor unions are. They empower people by virtue of mere numbers rather than wealth and income. He who pays the piper ought to call the tune or, as the Supreme Court says, Money talks. The more our government caters to the wealthy and powerful, the greater their sense of entitlement grows. What they do not want and will no longer tolerate is backtalk from the general public. The latter must be cowed, not coddled, re-educated through austerity measures, for example. To expect little from government beyond the compensatory satisfaction, which is not to be underestimated, of identifying with the mightiest nation on earth. Its government properly exists for, and rightfully belongs to, the wealthy and powerful. More than a half century ago, historian William Appleman Williams called on us to choose between democracy and empire. In those Cold War days, the idea of America as an empire was inadmissible. Our Soviet enemy was an empire. Today, we shoulder the burden of empire proudly. As Republican strategist Karl Rove said in 2004 when we were wreaking havoc in Iraq, quote, We're an empire now, and when we act, we create our own reality. Ditto our own morality. The fruits of empire, among which Williams in the 1960s could count an increasingly widely shared prosperity, which he saw as inextricably linked to imperial capitalism and thus profoundly flawed, made it easy to blind ourselves to our bargain with the devil. Since then, the distribution of income and wealth has been redirected upward, quote, reformed or modernized as it were. Not, let us note, redistributed. Redistribution is a bad word, reeking of resentment, only to be applied to measures that would benefit the lower three-quarters of the population. Indeed, current thinking justifies gross economic and political inequality, though some concede that ours may have gone a bit too far. Now that many of our fellow citizens are less secure and hopeful economically, are in effect no longer being bought off and beginning to feel the yoke of empire, are they any more ready to question the supposedly benign nature of American power? Or will they continue to hug their greatness of America illusions and look anywhere else for the source of their problems? The trouble with the D.H. Lawrence poem I began these two articles with, as I see now, is that it takes out the onus of the polluters of language. People are too willing to swallow official lies, but that does not excuse those who benefit from our deception. We should be spared official lies in the first place power should speak truth to us and refuse the dodge of, quote, national security, its security blanket. Until it does so, democracy, which we all claim to revere, will continue to be subverted, and war and inequality will thrive. On the other hand, there's another Lawrence poem whose sentiment I have always liked, though it's not a great poem. One of his pansies, The poem implores the, quote, God of justice to spare the people any more saviors, but teach us to save ourselves instead. And that'll wrap up this episode of You Can't Be Neutral. Remember, you can uh, follow You Can't Be Neutral on Twitter at YCBNeutral. You can check out all the back episodes and find out more at YouCan'tBeNeutral.com. And you can listen to this podcast and all my podcasts, playing 24-7 at movingtrainradio.com. And now, a moment of zen. Thanks for listening.
2: But in fact, this is a class society, and, and you could start a history of the United States with that sentence, the history of the United States is a history of class struggle. And it would be absolutely accurate. But can you imagine somebody writing, let's say, a textbook on American history for our very vulnerable students and starting off talking about our history, being a history of class struggle? Can you imagine any major publisher publishing a book like that with that first sentence? Would it take very long for the publisher to go through that manuscript before rejecting it? And yet, it is an absolutely true statement. From the very beginning uh, on the North American continent, uh, from the those first centuries of what is called the colonial period, the period before the American Revolution, we were a class society. We didn't all come here as pilgrims. I remember going to school, my, uh, my impression was that those people who came from England all dressed in the same simple way. <laughs> it was a very egalitarian society, and they signed the Mayflower Compact, which proved it. And but no, in fact, there are people who came here as black slaves, and there were other people who came here as indentured servants. Large numbers of women came. As you might say, uh, servants and sex slaves uh, to serve the men who were already here, the labor force that had to be satisfied in some way. Others came here with enormous grants of land given by the king or given by parliament. And so, from the beginning, they were very rich and, and very poor. And that pattern continued all through American history. And the poor resisted and rebelled, and there were slave rebellions, and there were servants' rebellions, and, and the poor uh, of the colonies rioted, the, uh, the flour riot, uh, the bread riot. Uh, the People uh, attacked the warehouses where the flour is stored uh, Flour is not being made available to them because they can't afford the prices that are being charged for the flour. And they storm and they, and they open up the, the warehouse and they take the flour so they can make bread and feed their families. Uh, riots against impressment. Riots because they're being impressed to fight the wars of the British uh, in the uh, 18th, late 17th and 18th centuries. This is all before the American Revolution tenants insurrections against landlords, uh, crowds marching onto jails and freeing the prisoners who've been put in prison because of failure to pay their debts.